Welcome back to Canada's Young Leaders, a podcast exploring bold ideas for our country's future. This is the climate season, where we'll be speaking with young environmental leaders about the roles of governments, corporations, and individuals in combating climate change. We'll also look at the COVID-19 pandemic and the opportunity it presents to build back better. This season, we hope to educate both our listeners and ourselves about the biggest issue our species has ever faced, the battle to save planet Earth. Welcome back, everybody, to Canada's Young Leaders. Today, we are joined by Erica Wicks, who will be talking to about Canada's transition to the net zero economy. Erica is the managing director at Quest, which is a national NGO that works to accelerate the adoption of efficient and integrated community scale energy systems in Canada. Their goal, Canada as a nation of smart energy communities. Hi, Erica. Hi, how are you guys doing? We're doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. We're uh, very, very excited to talk to you about uh, smart energy communities and, and everything that means and, and promises for our nation. And maybe you could get us started off, off, Erica, just by telling us a little bit about Quest. Sure, yeah. So Quest, uh, as was just mentioned, we're a national nonprofit, actually. And we um, work with multiple stakeholders that work in the community energy space. We think about communities as more than just local governments, but really anybody that kind of influences the uh, end use of energy. So this could be kind of utilities or um, service providers, real estate developers, um, and kind of work to align kind of thinking and actioning around helping communities become more energy smart. Okay, so then tell us what what is a smart energy community specifically? This is kind of the the pillar of what you guys do at Quest. Tell us a bit about, you know, what a what a smart energy community looks like, what it feels like. How is it different from the communities we have now? Sure. Yeah. So, smart energy communities, they're diverse and varied really uh, each community is unique so what they look like is is unique uh, but in the end they seamlessly integrate local renewable and conventional energy sources to efficiently cleanly and affordably meet their energy needs and they share even though there are different ways to to get to that they share common outcomes so they have more resilient infrastructure energy access is more equitable and affordable they experience enhanced economic opportunities, have improved local environmental quality, and they maximize the value of infrastructure assets. And that's both existing and new infrastructure. Can I uh, uh, ask then, let's maybe get a little more specific, because I, I don't think I uh, fully seize the, I think the excitement around what one of these smart communities would actually be. I, you know, having worked at the McConnell Foundation, I know a little bit about local energy sources, but maybe uh, you could give us an example of, you know, what, what that actually may mean. How, how does a community appropriate the power to create and distribute energy in a way that they can't do today? I'm going to give you a, a few specific community examples who have approached this through different ways. And it's it's different really in each province and territory, but increasingly municipalities are starting to realize the power that they hold to influence the their energy expenditures, how much money uh, is kind of kept or going out of the community uh, for energy, and thus uh, their, their greenhouse gas emissions as well. So 
I'm, I'm going to give you a few examples. One's from the province where I'm originally from, Nova Scotia. So this one's really close to my heart. And uh, this one is the town of Bridgewater, which has won national awards. They actually um, recently won the Smart Cities Challenge in the small community kind of placement. Yeah, so, category. Yeah, I know yeah that, category. That, that's, amazing, uh, that's an amazing uh, initiative by the federal government uh, to, to, to find communities that were interested in this, these issues. I, I had not heard the Bridgewater story. Can't wait to, for you to share it with us. Yeah, so Bridgewater, like many communities, has a lot of old building stock. And it's also a rural community. So rural, rural small community of 6,000, around 6,000 people. It has an aging population and uh, not a lot of industry there. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's tax base is confined. And they have an energy poverty rate of 38%. So this energy poverty in, in this context means um, if people are spending more than 10% of their income on energy for their home and transportation. So their goal, um, thinking about things holistically, which is, uh, you know, a cornerstone of smart energy communities, kind of that systems approach to energy is to reduce their energy poverty rate by 20% by 2025. So that's coming up really closely. And they have a few um, prongs that they're approaching to doing this. One is increasing the access to affordable, energy efficient housing, and also improving mobility through active and public transportation, because it is a small town. So they have a, a huge opportunity to encourage people to be more active with their transportation op, um, options. Um, and they're going about uh, this in a few really cool ways. So as I mentioned before, they won the Smart Cities Challenge. I think they have like $5 million that they can invest in uh, in the solutions that they've identified. Uh, but they also want to pool different opportunities together to attract private investment. And I think communities are starting to think a lot more along this line, um, not just looking at federal, federal government money, but how can they partner and attract investment from uh, the private sector as well. So they're using a centralized energy management information system to provide data to residents to really like take ownership of how they use the energy, as well as to finding different solutions and pathways to accessing the programs that are gonna be part uh, of this undertaking. Uh, by Bridgewater. So that's one example. I'll, I'll give you a, a couple more. That's kind of coming about it through having equitable and affordable energy for all in a community and integrating different aspects of how communities used, or sorry, energy is used in a community. When we talk about in like incorporating existing and new infrastructure assets. I just want to kind of point to the city of Yellowknife actually. So they had wanted to reduce their energy expenditure as well as their um, greenhouse gas emissions. And they actually look, they have a community energy plan, so are doing a lot of initiatives, but a large one they recently undertook a couple years ago was to have uh, a district energy system. And to have a district district energy system usually have to have a, an energy load, which they did five municipally owned buildings that they looked at that had, were using a lot of heat, enabled them to design and implement this system. And this is going to result in them uh, lowering their emissions by over 800 tons of uh, carbon wow. dioxide wow. Yeah, equivalent. And this is, this is like essentially half <laughs> of their reduction target just from this one project that's connecting these five buildings. 
That's you know incredible. what they're doing uh, to uh, to reduce the the actual emission levels and make them so much more efficient? Is it is it windows, roofs, uh, all the above, uh, and uh, you know heating systems? This is just one project, and it's a biomass district energy system. Ah. Yeah. Right. So they it, it involved infrastructure uh, to you know kind of put in the ground to uh, connect these five buildings, but they buy you know wood pellets from uh, business in the Northwest Territories and burn that instead of diesel. I think is what they were using before. So yeah. this, you know, this not only decreased their carbon dioxide emissions, but also is saving them about one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Wow, that's incredible. That's yeah. wow, that's mind blowing. Also, just want to say that th- this concept of energy poverty is so interesting. I've never heard that before. It's such an interesting metric to think about how we how we consume energy and how much we pay for it. Well, it's a really smart metric too because it it it's uh, in many ways is inspired by the housing poverty vernacular that's been around for so long, which is if you spend more than 30% of your income on housing, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're living in housing, uh, form of housing poverty. Like that, right. that shouldn't be any more than that. So I think it's super smart of the ecological communities to kind of glom onto that, that thinking. But uh, anyway, I, I just, I just, I can't help but throw out this example. It's a fantastic Quebec example of uh, testing a geothermal energy source in a mm. local community uh, uh, in Montreal North that is shared by multiple households. So imagine having you know one geothermal source that heats a whole block. Yeah. They all share uh, in the costs of actually expending that energy, but uh, it's it's intensively localized. So it yeah. doesn't they don't draw from the Hydro Quebec, they draw from that local geothermal source and it's shared. It's not just one house one geothermal unit. Anyway, that may be part of the future that I think you're talking about, Eric. It's so exciting. Yeah, definitely is. So I want to zoom out a little bit here. In 2015, the uh, Paris Accords were signed by basically every country in the world, uh, acknowledging that we need to combat climate change and that you know each country would set its own targets relative to its emissions, all that. Uh, and so Canada, we developed the Pan-Canadian Framework. And currently, that framework gives us the target of a 30% reduction by 2030. So 10 years, we're going to cut our emissions by 30%. So Erica, I guess my first question for you, you hear a lot about Paris targets, you hear a lot about pan-Canadian framework targets. Is that the same thing? Yeah, it is. I think each country has adopted their own set of regulations and policy um, after signing on to the Paris Agreement. And yeah, generally, it's um, it's the same commitment, essentially, to ensuring that we keep our uh, the temperature rise, preferably not above like 1.5% for pre-industrial levels uh, by 2050 or 2030. That's terrible right. that I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. 1.5 yeah. degrees um, yes, yeah. below pre-industrial levels, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we've, you know, we've set commitments here in Canada to kind of help meet the target locally, I guess, like locally, nationally being Canada uh, by reducing our emissions 30% below 20 or 2005 levels by 2030. So what can you kind of talk to us a bit about what the next 10 years look like? What's the plan? How does the government actually intend to reduce our emissions by that much? The Pan-Canadian framework does actually have four kind of pillars, I guess, that it focuses on to reach these targets. 
I'm not sure. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm not in agreement <laughs> necessarily with all of them, but uh, they're they're all tools essentially to meet this. So like carbon pollution pricing, other actions to reduce emissions, obviously adaptation to, uh, to climate and climate resilience, and then clean tech and innovation and jobs is lumped together. What you know what. I feel is missing here is two things really. So more of a holistic view uh, of how energy systems need to be transformed and what local players can do to help meeting those targets, but also that more societal view essentially. So, and, and I think actually, I was just uh, actually reviewing their fourth year numbers as well as what was in the, the climate tracker. And right now we're not on track necessarily to reach our uh, our commitments that we've set down. So we are only tracking right now to be about 15% uh, below 2005 levels by 2030, and we're supposed to be at 30%. So we have quite a way to go. And there's quite a few things that we can do there. So a lot, obviously, on the energy uh, side of things, because energy and climate are so intricately related. So obviously, a lot more efficient use of energy and energy efficiency is one of the first things that we need to, to look at. And that's not just in, you know, buildings and transportation, but also in produce, producing energy and distributing over the grid. We're going to see a lot more distributed energy resources. So, Jim, what you were talking about earlier with that geothermal project and um, having a community kind of take uh, control of the energy and not feed off the grid, we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, and we're going to see a lot more of lowering consumption, not just of consumer goods uh, and travel, but also those high highly carbon intense industrial sort of like processes and products like steel, cement, plastics. But then we have the societal side of things. So I think we're going to have to invest in kind of creating the foundations to enable investments in technology and other things to actually be able to take place in a more cost-effective manner uh, and over the longer term. So when we did a three-year project on smart energy communities and identifying what are the key kind of indicators that uh, that exist to identify what a smart energy community is and what is needed to get there, we saw that there were a lot of uh, capacity constraints. And those things were around governance, around financing, etc. And because communities um, are responsible for more than half of GHG emissions uh, reductions in energy use and also control about 60% of public infrastructure, we have to engage them. The thing is that they don't have the capacity to undertake a lot of the actions that are needed a lot of the time. So we need to invest quite a bit there. I mean, I'm, I'm still kind of stuck on the statistic around us being, you know, if we're lucky, getting to half of the target by 2030 based on, you know, the best evidence that we have. So I guess, you know, my question, I think it's kind of underlined in your suggestion that there's additional things that have to be done that are not doing being done now is the pipeline question. So this deal that was done to put a carbon price 
into effect in Canada was predicated on Alberta in particular being able to build pipelines and getting uh, their crude uh, to to uh, to market. We know what's happening uh, in that file. Um, that pipeline is being built and is almost completed, as I understand it. Uh, in an Erica Wicks world, does that have to stop for us to actually get to where we need to go? Is that is that really the kind of price we have to pay uh, as a country? And and if not, what other kind of really massive investment? We're talking about doubling what we're doing now. Do we have to double the carbon price? You know, on on uh, gasoline uh, is that part of it? Is there something to do around with major manufacturers? I think you've actually touched on that, but I'm just worried that we're are we are we not thinking big enough? about what we really need to do. Anyway, we'd love to have your comments on that. Yeah, I do think that you're right there. We aren't thinking big enough and we're not thinking um, holistically enough uh, about what we need to do. And I do believe that we have a really great opportunity right now with all the stimulus that's going to flow from COVID. Like it it is really the perfect opportunity to make these investments. We're going to be making massive investments anyways. Why wouldn't we want to essentially you know, funnel that money in the right way so that there can be like extensive lasting changes in the structure of how we do things and kind of like in the, in the infrastructure as well. So there's so many things <laughs> really that's going, that is going to require investment. And like I always say, there's, there's not one magic solution. Like I know a lot of people will tout carbon pricing as like the only solution or technology as the only solution. That's just not true. I mean, I, I think that uh, specifically with technology that has been proven that that's not going to be our savior and we need to do things differently now right and one aspect that we haven't taken in the past that i think and there's a groundswell behind right now is some of those societal solutions and that you know that is really around investing in people and reskilling people you know that's part of what the uh, there's a just transition coalition, I think, uh, around reskilling people in the Western provinces for work that's not related to oil and gas and to work in other industries. And we know as well that, um, you know, in some reports that have been out by Efficiency Canada or corporate nights that jobs related to cleaner energy employment pay more and there's a ton of opportunity there, right? So even though we are an investing and going to be investing more money in things, we're going to have a better return from things as well. We've got to take a quick break. We're going to jump back into Erica Wick's world after this short interlude. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Good morning. Good afternoon. Happy midnight snack. Is it ice cream? Spicy Cheetos? You do you, boo-boo. This is Jenna with this week's interlude of Your Voice, and today we are talking about the transition to a green economy and asked as our prompt, because 2050 is so far away, what should Canada's number one climate goal be in the short term, say by 2025? Our dad's buddy, Blair McIntosh, pretty sure from law school, says, ensure that not one more cent of taxpayer money goes into the tar sands and instead invest those dollars in renewable resources to diversify Canada's economy, particularly in the West, so as to make us energy independent, green, and carbon neutral. 
And yeah, right now, Canada's economy is still super dependent on oil, like, like super dependent. And where does that oil come from? Mostly Alberta. And a lot of Albertans work in that sector. So what do we do about that? Well, we start a slow transition. Blair is saying we need to diversify our economy, meaning we move away from oil and dominate other markets, i.e. clean energy markets. Let's be a global leader in clean energy and invest heavily in retraining fossil fuel workers to become clean energy workers. This is Canada. We pride ourselves on being so progressive, but we aren't nearly as far along as we think we are and as we have to be. So this is Canada. Let's be as good as we think we are, because we're not yet. Thanks, Blair, for the great comment. And if you are enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. I'm Jenna Wheeler-Hughes. Stay safe and wear a gosh darn mask. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Canada's Young Leaders. We're delighted to be talking to Erica Wicks about the transition, some people call the great transition, how our society has got to change to save itself. And we've been talking about uh, smart energy communities uh, in the first half of the show. And Erica, let's ask you a little bit about not the what of transition, but the how of it. And, and what are the guiding principles of the smart energy communities that Quest is being promoting over the years? Handily, we actually had created technical uh, principles and policy principles as well when Quest was first starting up over a decade ago. The technical principles are hierarchical and starts with improving energy efficiency, which everybody agrees upon. That is the first fuel, I guess, that you need to focus on. Uh, But also using um, high quality energy in high quality applications capturing uh, waste heat and using it, reducing waste. And then, you know, where it makes sense uh, using renewable energy sources and tacking, tack, or sorry, tapping into the local opportunity. So those renewable energy resources are different for every community and we need to be sensitive to that. Um, and, and we also, as I mentioned a few times, Quest takes a systems approach to energy. So we're not looking at things in kind of like a one-off or siloed fashion. You know, we're not saying like, oh, you know, heat pumps is going to be the solution to everything. Uh, we look at the system as a whole and, um, you know, we the work that we do with our communities focuses on that. Our policy principles are all encompassing and we try to keep them you know, quite open, but we were actually kind of born out of this like planning profession and thinking about land use and how that influences uh, energy use and energy lock-in. So um, we have a big focus there uh, in terms of like planning um, principles and whatnot. So we need to match our land use needs to the mobility options that are there, uh, matching the energy options locally, which I mentioned before. But then Uh, Also, not getting too prescriptive with things, so emphasizing performance and outcomes in policy and regulations instead of prescribing like a specific technology, uh, for instance, is really important with the work that we do. So we're technology and fuel agnostic. We, you know, we do think it's kind of like the right fuel, right place, right time for the communities we work with. Erica, we've we've talked a bit kind of off the show just in in chatting uh, about how smart energy communities go a bit beyond just reducing emissions. They're more than that, right? They're actually communities that bring more people into the process 
of making the transition. So I'm, I'm hoping you can talk to me a bit about, you know, the inclusivity side of, of uh, SECs, the democratic side. How do we, how do we bring uh, more diverse voices into the, the climate movement and into smart energy communities? This is, um, you know, something that uh, collaboration is one of our guiding values at Quest. And we've always realized that you need to involve multiple community players, um, stakeholders, rights holders in these discussions so that planning is aligned, you're reducing redundancy, uh, you're actually getting to where you need to go. So, you know, we work with local governments, utilities, regulators, uh, provincial and territorial governments, developers. We include really all of them in the discussions that we do. And you can see this in our network makeup, which is, you know, 5,000 plus strong and includes players from all those groups, I'd say we still have uh, a ways to go for sure. You know, we've started doing work with Indigenous communities, but I have a lot of learning uh, still to be done on this file. And I'd say a lot of learning on our end as well about working with more vulnerable populations or those who have traditionally been, you know, oppressed or marginalized, but that have, you know, have a lot to say in terms of what they want their energy future to be. And I'm wondering about exactly that too, about, you know, who gets a say, who's at the table. And I'm wondering if you could speak, Erica, a little bit about the role of women in the ecological movement and and whether to some degree women uh, have not found their rightful place and found their rightful voice in the, the you know, the, the megastorm that is the, you know, the environmental debate. And I know you've done some thinking and work uh, um, researching in this area. And I, I wonder if you could share that with our audience. Yeah, I, um, I do believe that women are part of the solution and taking a more feminist approach. I know that can be a dirty <laughs> word for some people is uh, is part of the solution here. So when you look, you know, when you backcast and think about a lot of solutions that have been recommended in the future, they're very technological and policy focused, you know, and have been, there have been men, primarily white men as kind of like the gatekeepers and the decision makers uh, on the energy file, on the climate change file. That That's really unfortunate because I think it is a missed, a more feminist perspective and way of doing things. And by this, I mean taking a bit more of like a societal view on things and thinking about it as a complex social issue that we need to think about and not just in terms of like a, a technological solution. So we need to be looking at things like unequal power relations that exist here, uh, as well as um, other factors like socioeconomic status and race and age, etc. We need to make sure that these people are uh, people from groups rather that have been marginalized or oppressed are included in the solutions for a myriad of reasons. But, you know, one thing that I think really needs to happen over the next 10 years is to kind of shift this conversation from being really like politicized and partisan to being more personal. And it'll become more personal as as we give a voice to people that haven't been involved in those discussions before, because those people are the ones that have experienced um, the brunt of climate change impacts. 
I think, you know, so when you're, when you're kind of sitting in, you know, the high chair essentially um, and are not impacted on a daily basis, I I don't really think the solutions that have been generated from this um, are as effective as they could have been because it's not taking in account the reality Mm -hmm. and the lived experience of a lot of people. It's, it's interesting. You know, if you kind of think about how we got ourselves into this mess in the first place. It was because the the predominant view was to exploit the land for personal gain, right? Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was a pretty, you know, white Western man perspective. And so, I, you know, it kind of makes me think about how to get out of the mess. We, we, we shouldn't be relying on this same narrative. We actually need to diversify in a way that we have never done before, uh, and and bring all kinds of different voices into the conversation to to shift away from the land as a source of profit and actually something to be preserved and saved. Yeah, and this is where working with you know our indigenous peoples can really come into yeah. place and getting serious about reconciliation because you're absolutely right because we haven't taken into account indigenous knowledge uh, which has been really focused on you know, the interconnectedness of really all things, um, Mm -hmm. we're in this situation, you know, for sure. So we need to get serious about reconciliation there and really listen and learn from our Indigenous people and give them uh, the capacity and tools they need to lead Canada through this transition. Uh, and, and they quite frankly can't <laughs> right now because they're they're kind of worried about the housing crisis and not having the ability to have like clean water that they can get from their taps, yeah. you know? So there's a lot of work to be done there. We, we, we've actually had guests on the show who have said that, you know, uh, the fight against climate change is in a way directly tethered, if not the same thing as reconciliation with Indigenous people. They go hand in hand. And so I think that's something that we need to be mindful of and to, you know, be be more open to as far as learning about uh, ways of Indigenous knowing and learning. Okay, I we're coming to the end of the show. And I want to ask you the magic question, Erica. And that is, if we were to give you three wishes, not us, you just get them. You just get them because we're living in Erica Quick's world. EWW. What do you do with your three wishes? They obviously need to be, you know, not insane. It's not a snap of the fingers and climate change is gone. What are three practical wishes uh, that you have for Canada uh, in working towards this transition to a net zero economy? Yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent question. I, I love how you ask this question. It's the million dollar question. <laughs> At the end, yeah, and I, I will, um, you know, there are technological and policy solutions and you you know you can read all about them that's kind of what dominates the news but I'm, I'm going to take a more societal view on this absolutely so one is around those that are right now uh, the gatekeepers and the decision makers in all sectors um, allowing more diverse voices at the table and um, giving us adequate resources for the work that we do. Um, You know, so this is, this goes beyond gender, but those other elements that I spoke about before, and this can potentially be uncomfortable for some people because we need to allow, you know, women and marginalized groups, racialized groups uh, to sit at the table as well as, um, 
and like listening to us and uh, allowing us to do our work. And it might involve some stepping aside or stepping down. And so, you know, there's going to be some discomfort potentially, but I I truly think this is part of the solution. Uh, One thing we talked about before is, you know, getting serious about Indigenous reconciliation there. So uh, it is working with our Indigenous peoples of Canada and, you know, recognizing their rights to self-determination and transferring power to them uh, so that they can help lead us through this transition. And um, also something I touched on before is investing in people. So I, you know, I bag of folks not to just uh, look at the technological angle to these things, but think about those foundational items that are needed um, to essentially uh, enable the technology technological uptake to occur or the policies to be you know to have more buy-in those policy changes that are needed have more buy-in by actually investing in people to do the work on the ground so you know a, a lot of these are local uh, governments but other local energy players as well and they're needed, quite frankly, for those stats that I mentioned before in terms of kind of like the ownership or purview that they have over uh, infrastructure and energy lock-in or whatnot. But uh, we know, you know, work that uh, federal government's done, organizations like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities have done, there's just like a huge lack of capacity (laughs) at that level. So, you know, it might not be really sexy or kind of the shiny new thing to talk about investing in people and ensuring that they have the capacity to like understand the financial tools that they need to become more energy smart or the governance systems um, that are maybe more appropriate and more impactful to actually implementing solutions. Uh, But people are ultimately the catalyst for change. So if we're not investing in people, we're not going to see the benefits uh, from those policies and technologies. And, you know, there is a risk that we're not going to hit our targets. So those would be my three wishes. Erica, I hate to break it to you, but fighting climate change is just not sexy. And (laughs) if it were, we'd have so much more. Oh my goodness. But I love it. You know, a more inclusive society, emphasis on reconciliation with Indigenous people and to invest in people on the ground, in communities, mm-hmm. at the local level. I, I really like that. That brings us to the end of the show. So Erica Wicks, thank you so much for joining us on Canada's Young Leaders. It has been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Thanks for listening to Canada's Young Leaders. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. It's the best way for the show to grow. Special thanks to Cam Duffin and his band Lost Cousins for our theme music, to Meredith Lindsay for our logo, and to Tom Zalatni for producing our show. You're the best, Tom. Canada's Young Leaders is a proud member of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Stefan, and please join me every week for my podcast, Some Good Friends, a show where I talk to some good friends of mine. Previous guests have included a Reiki healer, 
the heir to the Redenbacher popcorn throne, the person definitely not responsible for the murder hornet outbreak, and Jack Nicholson. Comes out Mondays, early in the morning. Check it out and you might laugh.